So we return this morning to our study of Genesis. Um, it's been almost two months since we've been in this book. Um, a couple months ago, my wife and I had the, the distinct pleasure, uh, literally, of getting away for our 30-year anniversary and taking a, a trip away. And so we had some, uh, some guest speakers that filled in while I was gone, and then when I came back, we had Thanksgiving, and then we launched into our Advent series. And so it's been a couple of months since we have been in Genesis. And so I thought this morning that it would be helpful for us to do a bit of a review. Um, our study of Genesis actually began, uh, if you're new with us this morning, it began several years ago. Um, and when we went through Genesis, we stopped at chapter 11. And we took about a, a three-year break to go through the book of Romans. And that was a blessing uh, to myself and to all of us. Um, and so just this past year, we picked up again with chapter 12. And so since there are a lot of us here who, who weren't with us when we went through the first 11 chapters, and since it's been such a long time that we have been in this book, I thought it would be helpful for this morning for us to do a bit of a, a review. So um, this morning we're going to do something that I hope will be a blessing to each and every one of us, um, an encouragement. Uh, it's something that I hope will put us all on the same page together, and that is we're going to walk through the first 17 chapters of the book of Genesis together, as well as take a peek at the next two chapters that we're going to launch into next week. So y'all Y'all pray for Blaine Jenkins, who's back there on the PowerPoint. He's like, he's like, there's like 40 slides on this thing. How am I going to keep up? So pray for Blaine. Blaine, we're with you, man. We got you. You're good. Don't worry. We're not all perfect, so you're going to get behind. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Um, so before we dive back into the weeds of Genesis and get back to what is normally our verse-by-verse exposition of the Scriptures. This morning, I want us to back up again to 30,000 feet and see if we can get a lay of the land and seek to understand the thematic unity that exists within the book of Genesis. And through that unity, how it communicates to us the, the central message of the book. So as you probably know, Genesis was written by Moses. It was written 3,500, some 3,500 years ago. And at that point, the Israelites had just been freed out of captivity from Egypt. They had miraculously crossed through the Red Sea, and now they had begun what Bible scholars call the wilderness wanderings. That's the setting for this book. The Israelites on the Sinai Peninsula wandering. They've been given the law, but they had not yet entered into the promised land, and they're, and they're wandering there. And this is when Moses writes this book and communicates this to the people. And so the title of this book is Genesis, and that word comes from the very first Hebrew word in the Bible, the very first word in the Hebrew scriptures of Genesis, and that is in the beginning. So it's a book about beginnings, book about origins, the beginning of time, the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, and the beginning of nations. And, and we'll need to return to the, the, the setting in which this was written to the Sinai Peninsula as we seek to understand what, what was God's intention in 
in speaking these words to Moses and having him put them down on paper and preserving them throughout the ages to give us the book of Genesis. In order for us to understand this message and to, and to get under the surface as to why God gave us this book, we're going need, to need to go back to the Sinai wilderness. And we're going to need to look at it through the eyes of the Israelites wandering in the Sinai Peninsula as they seek to unpack this book of beginnings. The first 11 chapters that we covered uh, a few years ago can be divided into four books. First of all is the book of creation, the first, uh, first three chapters. Then there's the book of Adam, and then there's the book of Noah, and then fourthly, the book of nations, or the book of Noah's sons and what became the nations of the earth. And what, what, what I want us to see this morning is that in each of these four books, there is a, a thread of three strands that is woven throughout that, these books. And these three strands are the thread of God's redemptive plan for sinful humanity. The, the three strands are, first of all, man's sin. Secondly, God's judgment as a re, in response to that sin. And then thirdly, the mercy of God. Man's sin, God's judgment, and the mercy of God. And we see all three of these strands woven throughout the first four books in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. First of all, it's the book of creation in the first three chapters. We see sin, the first of these three strands. We see sin clearly when, when mankind, who is the epitome of God's creation, the only part of God's creation made in his image, when this mankind rebels against God, disobeys the one command that God gave to him, and sins against God and falls from grace. But then we also see judgment. When God rightly and justly pronounces curses and judgment on mankind because of that sin. But then we also see mercy in the first three chapters. In what Bible scholars call the, the proto-evangelion, the, the pre-gospel. Because when God pronounces his curses on creation on, and on the man and the woman, he also pronounces a curse on the serpent who in the story represents Satan. He pronounces a curse on this serpent, and he, and he tells the serpent, you can read it in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15, he tells the serpent, there is one that is coming from the seed of the woman, who though you will crush, you will bruise his heel, figuratively, he, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. And this is a symbolic reference to the crucifixion, a prophetic reference to the crucifixion, when Satan will symbolically bruise Jesus' feet, but he will defeat sin and death for all time by destroying Satan and the curse of sin and death by dying on the cross of Calvary for the sins of mankind. So there's a hint of mercy in amidst the, the curses that are a result of the fall of man. So next comes the book of Adam. It's the second book in Genesis. The book of Adam just covers chapter 4. It's really the book of Adam's sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. So we see these three strands again woven throughout this book as well. First of all, we see sin in Cain. 
Cain, who becomes jealous of his brother Abel. Why? Because God accepts Abel's sacrifice and not his own. And Abel becomes bitter, or excuse me, Cain becomes bitter and angry. And out of his anger and jealousy, he kills his brother. He murders Abel. So we see sin. But then in response to that, we see judgment. We see that second strand in this three-threaded strand. As God makes Cain a a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And he tells him, now you're going to be cursed. Now when you work the ground, it's no longer going to yield fruit for you. And so we see judgment in response to the sin. But then we also see mercy. This judgment also made things more troubling. Because what about that promise that was made to Adam and Eve? That, that, that curse on the serpent. What about the one who would come from the seed of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent? Which of Adam and Eve's children is that promise going to continue through? Which of the sons is going to be the child of promise? It can't be Abel because Abel's been murdered. He's no longer there. It can't be Cain because he is the murderer. So through whom will this promise continue that God made? And that's where this third strand of mercy is woven into this second book. As Adam and Eve have a third son whose name is Seth. And it turns out this third son, Seth, is the child of promise. The son through whom the promise would continue. And so in the second book of Adam, we see those three strands. Sin, God's judgment. And the mercy of God displayed and woven throughout it. The third book is the book of Noah. This by far is the longest book of the first 11 chapters. It covers five chapters, chapters 5 through 9. And again, we see these three strands of God's redemptive history. And all three of them can be seen in a short passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 6. In chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, Moses writes, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a great description of the sinfulness of mankind. God God saw the wickedness of man and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. That's the first strand. The second strand we see in verses 6 and 7. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. So there's strand number two, the judgment of God. God was going to send a flood to destroy mankind and to wipe off the wipe out creation as a result of as a consequence of the sin of man. So there we have judgment. But then we also see a foreshadowing of God's mercy in this passage in the very next verse, verse 8. When Moses writes, "But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." So God's mercy is shown to Noah And his family, as he instructs them to build an ark, why? It was as a means of saving them from that judgment. 
So the lesson of Noah is that, is that God made a way for mankind to be spared judgment. And that way of being spared judgment is through the ark. Noah's ark was made of wood, and it was built by faith. And by entering into it, Noah and his family were spared from judgment and brought safely through to dry land on the other side where he built an altar and worshiped God. Our altar, or excuse me, our ark, likewise is made of wood, and it is the cross of Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that we could never live and died in our place on the cross to satisfy God's need for judgment because of our sin. And by entering into our ark through faith in Jesus Christ, we too are brought safely through the judgment to the other side where we build an altar with our life with which to worship our God. So again, we see man's sin God's judgment as a result of that sin, and then a display of the mercy of God in that book. And then the final book of the first 11 chapters, book four, is the book of nations, or we could call it the book of Noah's sons. It's chapters 10 and 11. It's mostly genealogies as you go and and look at that. It's mostly genealogies as uh, as, as we look at the begats of Noah's sons and the table of nations that are listed there, the the beginning of nations as they are spread throughout the earth. But in the middle of this story, this section, the first nine verses of chapter 11, we have this little story of the Tower of Babel. You've probably heard of it before. And it's in this story that we see those three strands again, man's sin, God's judgment, and the mercy of God. We see sin in that story in the, in the pride and arrogance of man as he builds a tower. He tries to build a tower up to God to, to be like God. But then we see the judgment of God as God confuses them with different languages and then disperses them throughout the earth. So there's judgment as a result of that sin. But it's through the, the dispersion of the peoples that gives rise to the story of Abraham. Abraham, who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, where his people were dispersed as a result of the Tower of Babel. And it's through Abraham that this promise of redemption continues. And so we also see mercy in that final section of the first 11 chapters. So now we find ourselves where we picked up the story earlier in 2019 when we started back into our study of Genesis with chapter 12. And chapter 12 really does start a new section of the book of Genesis. Though it's not nearly halfway through the book, there is a very clear line of demarcation right between chapter 11 and chapter 12. The first 11 chapters can be can be symbolized as a book of beginnings. As we said, the beginning of time, the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, and the beginning of nations. But after that, chapter 12 and onward, it's a book about the patriarchs, beginning first with Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and so on from there. In chapter 12, God calls Abraham, then he is called Abram at that point, 
God calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans where his people had been dispersed. And he says, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm not telling you where you're going, but I'm going to show you that land. Just leave, start walking, and I'm going to show you where you're going to go. But in calling him out of that place and onto this journey of faith, he also gives Abram some promises. Promises of blessing. Promises of progeny or offspring. And a promise of land. And so he begins to give Abraham these promises. And the, and the promise of offspring that he mentions there is particularly interesting to us. Because at the end of chapter 11, we're introduced to Abraham and his wife, Sarai. And we're told that Sarai is barren. She can't have children. She can't conceive. And so how is this going to happen, this promise of offspring? Nevertheless, Abraham leaves his homeland and he steps out in faith to obey God. And thus begins the journey of faith for Abraham that we're still in the middle of here in chapter 18. And in this story about Abraham, he is portrayed as an example of faith to follow. But but even this example is far from perfect because he falters in his faith. And we see this step of faith and then a faltering in faith in Abraham all throughout this story. And that will continue. An example of this in chapter 12 is no sooner do they enter into Canaan, the land that God showed to them, No sooner do they enter into that land than there's a famine. There's no food. So immediately we have this crisis of faith for Abraham. Will he trust God and stay there and and trust God for provision in the promised land? The answer is no, he doesn't. Instead he takes matters into his own hand. He takes his wife and he flees down to Egypt. And he gets into all kinds of trouble down there in Egypt. And so we see in Abraham. We see his faith to step out in faith and trust God and obey God, but then we also see him faltering in his faith and floundering in his faith. This journey of faith continues even as we continue in the story. In chapter 13, Abraham and his nephew Lot separate. His nephew moved with them out of Ur of the Chaldeans, is traveling with them, but at this point in the story, there's not enough room for both of their herds to graze on the same plot of land, and so they must separate. And Abraham trusts God, and he takes the land of promise that God had promised to him. But his nephew Lot chooses the cities of the valley, a valley including the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that will play prominently in the story of Genesis as we continue to unpack it in the coming weeks. In the next chapter, chapter 14, Abraham plays the part of a military hero because this coalition army from the east, which by the way is modern-day Iran, this, this coalition of armies from the east come down into Canaan and begin to wipe out the armies of the land. And, and so Abram, fueled by God and, and his faith in God, he, he does battle against this, this coalition army with 300, only 318 of his hired hands and defeats this army and drives them out, and in so doing, rescues his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive by this coalition army. But after this military victory, two kings show up to Abraham 
in order to show him honor and, and to thank him for his victory in driving out this invading army from Canaan. One of those kings was the king of Sodom, who in his attempt, his veiled attempt to honor Abraham, he tries to get Abraham to compromise his convictions and take some of the spoils of war. Abraham passes that test of faith, and he he rejects the spoils of war. The other king who visits him is the king of Salem, a precursor to Jerusalem. And he's known as the king called Melchizedek. And he's an interesting king because he's a king but also a priest. And we saw in this Melchizedek a prefiguring of Christ who also is both a king and a priest. Chapter 15 is all about covenant. God reiterates his covenant promises of blessing and offspring and land to Abraham. But then he formalizes his covenant with Abraham in this elaborate ceremony that is described for us. And and what God gets Abraham to do, he tells him to go off and and to, to gather some animals for sacrifice, but not to prepare them in the normal way. To to not offer them as burnt offerings as other sacrifices would. But instead he instructs instructs Abraham to cut them in half and to lay them in two rows. And then God himself passes through the two rows of animal sacrifices in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Symbolizing a blood oath to his servant Abraham, saying in essence to Abraham, Abraham, if I do not keep my covenant promises to you, may it be done to me, the Lord says, as was done to these animals. That's what that ceremony uh, meant to Abraham. And so this, this incredible, astonishing display of covenant promise to Abraham. And we would think coming out of that, that Abraham and Sarah, that their faith in the Lord would be as solid as ever. But it's not. In chapter 16, they fail again. <coughs> In chapter 16, they're both old. Um, humanly speaking, they see no possible way for them to have children. And they want to help God out. So they take matters into their own hands. Instead of trusting God to bring children to them, They take matters into their own hands, and Sarah gives her Egyptian servant, Hagar, to Abraham. She gets pregnant and gives birth to Ishmael, and they think they've done the Lord a favor by helping him out of this bind that he was in because she's old and barren, and they have no way of having children. But the Lord says, no, Ishmael is not the child of promise. That's not the one through whom this promise of one who's going to crush the head of the serpent is going to come. But instead of rebuking Abraham and and, um, rejecting him and telling him, Abraham, I'm done with you. I'm going to move on to the next person because your, your faith is too weak. Instead of doing that, God patiently, again, in chapter 17, reiterates his promises to him again. And this time... He gives them a sign of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant is circumcision. And so we 
ended chapter 17 with this <coughs> mass circumcision of all the males in Israel. All the males in Israel from eight days old to Abraham, who is 99 years old at this point, all received the sign of the covenant. So that's where we find ourselves this morning, right after that story, and about to dive into chapter 18. But before we move on from here, we need to consider a question. Did we see the same three-stranded thread of God's redemptive plan for sinful humanity that was so prevalent in the first 11 chapters? Did we see those same three strands in chapters 12 through 17? And of course we did. We saw sin, of course, and Abraham's faltering faith. He flees down to Egypt. He tries to to make his house servant his heir. Back in chapter 15, we didn't talk about that story. They take matters into their own hands with Hagar and try to have an offspring through her. These are just a few displays of of the lack of trust that Abraham has in God. And any lack of trust in God is sin. We also saw sin in Lot as he unwisely chose the cities of the valley over the city of the land of promise. We also saw sin in evil Ketelomer and his coalition army from the east as they invade the land of Canaan and wipe out the armies there. But then we also saw the second strand of this thread in judgment. Judgment was also seen. Excuse me, I'm still getting over a, a head cold. We saw judgment in that same King Ketelomer as he's destroyed and his army is driven out of Canaan. We saw it in Pharaoh and his house when they're struck by a plague because of how they handle the situation with Sarai when they go down there. But for the most part, in chapters 12 through 17, the judgment, that strand, is, is more hinted at and, and more prophetic. For example, with Lot, when he, chose, when he chooses the cities of the valley over the land of promise as his inheritance, there, there is a foreboding of future judgment there, that judgment is coming for the cities of the valley and for those who live in them, as we're going to see in the next couple of chapters. But it's that third strand, the strand of mercy, that is most prevalent in chapters 12 through 17. And that mercy is seen in these continuing promises that God makes to Abraham. He first makes them in chapter 12. He reiterates them in chapter 15. He reiterates them again in chapter 17. He gives them the sign. Over and over again, God reminds Abraham of these promises of blessing and offspring, and land. And in these promises is the fulfillment of the curse on the serpent that we learned about in Genesis chapter 3. God would bless Abraham, and through him, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How and why? Because one was coming through him. One was coming through his seed who would crush the head 
of Satan and free God's people from the curse of sin and death that was leveled on them in the garden because of the rebellion. And so the three-stranded thread of God's redemptive plan for mankind continues to be woven all throughout chapters 1 through 17. And that brings us now to where we're going to start next week in chapter 18. Chapter 18 and 19 really go together as a unit. If they were a play, it'd be a two-act play. The first, each, each of those acts has two scenes. Act 1, scene 1 is the first 15 verses of chapter 18. We see Abraham and Sarah and their family in the wilderness, and three, three men show up to him. Or at least he thinks that they're three men at the, at the beginning. Turns out they're two angels and the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a Christophany that we see in chapter 18. They show up to him in the middle of nowhere. And Abraham prepares a feast for them and demonstrates generous hospitality to them. And then the Lord among them issues a prophecy to Sarah and Abraham and say, I'm going to return here in a year and you will have a son. And you'll call his name Isaac. Scene two of this, those three visitors along with Abraham go up to a hilltop that overlooks the cities of the valley. And it's there that the Lord informs Abraham that he is going to destroy Sodom. And he tells him why. And then the two angels, the two men that are with them, they begin to make their way down to Sodom to carry out the judgment And then we have this beautiful scene, this intimate scene between the Lord and Abraham where Abraham intercedes for the people of Sodom and asks that God would spare them if there's only 50 righteous or 45 or 30 or 20 or 10. And no doubt he's thinking of his nephew Lot and his family who are now living in that city. And then this gives way to Uh, Act number two, scene number one. Scene number one of act two is the first 22 verses of chapter 19 where we learn what happens now down in Sodom. The, The two angels arrive in Sodom and we see the same sort of hospitality on Lot with Lot that we did with his uncle Abraham. And he prepares a feast for these two visitors and compels them to stay with him in his house. While they're there, the men of the city demand that Lot release these two men, who who again turn out to be angels. They demand that Lot would release these two men to them so that they can know them in a sexual way. Lot refuses to release them, and then oddly and strangely offers his daughters to them instead. So we'll need to unpack that when we get to it. The two angels then grab Lot and they bring him back into the house and they, they strike the men of the city with blindness. And then they, they compel Lot and his family to, to leave Sodom because God was going to destroy the city. And then in scene two of act two, God does just that. He rains down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys them. But Lot and his family escape. But as they're escaping, his wife looks looks back at the city. 
somehow in some way longing for what was left there. And she is turned to salt. And then at the end of this scene, at the end of chapter 19, there's this incredibly sad and very difficult story about Lot and his two daughters who in a terribly misguided attempt to keep their father's lineage in place, trick him into getting drunk. And they lie with him and both get pregnant and have sons to try to carry on their father Lot's name. And so we'll have to deal with that part of the story when we get to that as well. And so now consider again the three-stranded cord. That thread of three strands that we saw in chapters 1 through 17, we also see it in chapters 18 and 19. We see sin in Sarah's weak faith when she laughs at the prophecy of a son that will be given to her. Of course, we see sin in the sin of the sodomites, and so we'll we'll need to deal with the sin of homosexuality. We'll also need to deal with the sin of rape and sexual abuse, both of which these men of the city are guilty of. Not to mention the way that they treated these visitors that came to their city. It's starkly contrasted with how Abraham and Lot treat visitors. And so there's a fundamental and obvious lack of hospitality. And last but not least, the sin of Lot's daughters. And so there's lots of sin that we'll have to unpack in these two verses. But what about judgment? Clearly, we see judgment in chapters 18 and 19. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone becomes infamous in Scripture as both the Old Testament prophets as well as, as we'll see, many many New Testament writers hearken back to that scene in chapter 19 when they are trying to communicate and talk about and explain divine judgment. But then finally, mercy. We see mercy, the strand of mercy here as as God listens to Abraham as he intercedes for the city of Sodom. If there are even as few as ten righteous, God says that on their behalf he will spare the city. And mercy is shown to Lot. Mercy is shown to Lot because of Abraham. We're told that as God is preparing to destroy the city, We're told that he remembered Abraham, and on Abraham's account, he shows mercy to his nephew Lot and his family. But by far, by far, the greatest display of this third strand of mercy is seen in the continuing promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is told in chapter 18, as we'll see next week, That in one year, she will have a son. Though she is 90 years old, though she is barren and cannot conceive, though her husband is 100 years old, she will have a son, and his name will be called Isaac. And this Isaac will be the father of Jacob. And I'm transitioning now to the New Testament genealogy in Matthew 1. Isaac will be the father of Jacob, and Jacob will be the father of Judah. And Judah the father of Perez, and Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab. 
Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, and Boaz, the father of Obed, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Jorom, and Jorom, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And after the deportation to Babylon now, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And it is this Christ in a pre-incarnate theophany who is speaking to this old barren woman in chapter 18 and says to her, I will return in a year and you will have a son. And this son that is promised, Isaac, is the very ancestor of this pre-incarnate Christ who is giving her the prophecy of a child. 41 generations removed. And this Christ, when he is incarnated as a man, is the one who crushes the head of the serpent and defeats sin and death for all those who come to him by faith. Church, let us not miss the beautiful and amazing thematic unity of this book May we not miss the the three-stranded thread of God's glorious plan for redeeming sinners like us as we continue next week and the week after and work our way through this book. We'll see it in Abraham and Sarah. We'll see it in their son Isaac. We'll see it in Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. We'll see it in Jacob's sons and in particular his son Joseph and the story of his life, that three-stranded thread will, be, will continue to be woven throughout that narrative. And as Moses weaves this, these three strands all throughout this book, and, and, and in fact, as God continues to weave those three strands all the way through the Old Testament church, it all points to Jesus. It all points to the cross because man is sinful and deserving of judgment. But God is merciful. And he has made a way for sinful mankind to be rescued. And the means of this rescue is through the perfect righteous life of his son Jesus Christ. And his substitutionary death in our place. It's in the cross that we see the reality and the vileness of our sin and our deserving nature of God's judgment. But it's also in the cross that we see the grace and mercy of our God and allowing his son to die in our place so that by faith in him alone, 
we might be rescued from what we deserve. The reality is that for each of us in this room this morning, this three-stranded thread of God's redemption intersects with our lives this morning as well. Not only is mankind sinful in a generic and universal way, but you are sinful, and I am sinful. We have to personalize this. We have, each of us, rebelled against God. We've disobeyed Him. We've sinned against Him. We have fallen from grace. And as a result of that, we deserve judgment. Those are the wages of our sin. We deserve punishment. We deserve, like Adam and Eve, to be banished forever from the, from the presence of God. And not only is that what we deserve, that is exactly what we will get apart from Christ. But the good news is that God kept his promise. He sent the one from the seed of the woman. And though he bruised his heel... This one from the seed of the woman that came through Abraham crushed his head, crushed Satan, and destroyed the power of sin and death for all those who would come to him in saving faith. And so we all must answer the question, have I trusted in Christ alone to rescue me from what I deserve? If you have, then join me in praising God and in thanking God for the mercy that he has shown to you and I. We do not now stand before a holy God on our own merits. Thank goodness. We stand before a holy God only on the merits of this Christ. It is his righteousness with which we are robed and which makes us justified in his sight. We've been restored now to be the worshiper that we were created to be. The image of God in which we were formed and which was irreparably stained by our sin has been reformed in us so that by the mercy of God, We can live for his glory. And that's all that remains for you and I who know him by faith. To live lives that bring him glory. Not to pay him back. We could never pay him back for the grace and mercy he has extended to us. Otherwise, it would not be grace or mercy. But simply to thank him and to praise him for the mercy that he has shown to us in Christ. But if you have not, if you have not trusted in Christ alone to rescue you from the penalty of your own sin, then I beg of you this morning to be reconciled to God through Christ. Trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross as your only hope. You cannot do enough good. You cannot Attend church enough 
to outweigh the penalty and the stain of your own sin. Your only hope is to trust in Christ. And we pray, I pray, that you would do that this morning. Let's pray.